those interpretive keys are found in those first uh, three verses. This is a revelation. It's an unveiling. It is not a concealing. It's not trying to make things harder. It's making things easier. It's revealing things that had not been previously been, been revealed. Uh, it is something that is put into signs and symbols. So as you see these images and pictures, you're supposed to be able to uh, determine what these images are pointing to. We've noted that you will go back to the Old Testament prophets and you're going to see those pictures. When we see those pictures and what that meant in the Old Testament prophets, we can pull that image forward into Revelation and then apply it to that first century audience as they would have heard it and what that would have meant uh, for them. Uh, number three, things that must soon take place. The time is near. 2,000 years is not soon. 400 years is not soon. 200 years is not soon. 100 years is not soon. It's not soon to anybody. We've gone through that a couple of times now in defining soon has to be soon to the audience that's hearing that. And so there must be an interpretive point of view to this book that allows things to soon take place. Number four, it's a prophecy. And so even though we are seeing it put in, in letter form, as you see in verse four, John to the seven churches of Asia, grace and peace to you. Like all letters of those first century times, this is a prophecy. And so remember, prophecy does not necessarily mean telling future events. Prophecy means speaking the very words of God. God has given him these words, which he is now proclaiming. We are going to see, it's going to note throughout chapter one, He's going to talk about things that are in the present and things that are in the future. And so that is just like what you see with the Old Testament prophets. They spoke of things that were present, and they also spoke about things that were ultimately going to come. So those are the very uh, big, important four points to interpreting the book. Without those four things, that's how you get everybody off the rails and all these different interpretations, all these different points of view. If I were to make a sub-point, a key it would, we're not going to start with, in our minds, a particular date of the book. We're going to let the book speak for itself. We're going to let it tell us what it's saying. Rather than trying to make it say what we want it to say, starting off with some kind of interpretive grid of, well, here's what I think it's all about. And then you're going to be jamming the square pegs into the round holes instead of trying to let the book speak for itself and let its images dictate what it's all about. All right. In verses uh, four, five, and six last week, we saw that you have this book being set forward as a book of comfort. You are seeing pictures of Jesus who loved us, who freed us by his blood, who made us a kingdom, who made us to be priests, who is worthy of all praise. And so you are getting these pictures of who Jesus is. And we noted that all three of those images there of the father who is, who was, and who is to come, the seven spirits and of Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. These are all comfort pictures about the sovereignty of God, the eternal nature of God who rules over all things and by whom you can put your hope and trust in through the difficulties that this book is going to describe. All right, that's your First six verse summary. You good with all that? Good, good, good. All right. Verse seven. Behold, 
He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on uh, on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, that is an interesting one. When you read coming in the clouds, especially here's Christ, he's coming in the clouds. What is your immediate End of the world, right? Your immediate default, I think that's almost the standard view is everybody goes, well, if Christ is coming in the clouds, that means it's the end of the world. So I need to take a minute to show you why that's not the case and go through the scriptures. Now, there are places all over the scriptures. We don't have time to go to all of them, uh, but there are many Old Testament and New Testament places where you have God described as coming in the clouds And it is not pointing to the end of the world. If I were to give you, if you were only going to hold on to one in your mind, look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26. I could take you to lots of spots like Daniel 7, Jeremiah 4, Zephaniah 11, Ezekiel 30. Even Nahum, (laughs) there's lots of lots of cloud imagery that's in in the scriptures. But I'm going to just give you the one that you shouldn't forget. Matthew 26. And notice in. Well, let's make sure we have our context, because I want you to see who who Jesus is talking to. If you back up to verse 57 You'll notice that you have Jesus is led to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, that's that's who's talking to each other in this trial sequence. Verse 63, Jesus remained silent and the high priest, Caiaphas, said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here's the one of two options. <laughs> Jesus was wrong thinking that the end of the world was coming and that Caiaphas would see it. Or coming in the clouds doesn't mean the end of the world. And I'll go with coming in the clouds doesn't mean the end of the world rather than Jesus was wrong. This is one of those places where Jesus turns to to Caiaphas and says, you're going to see me coming in the clouds. (laughs) All right. Mm. (laughs) So when you read pictures of coming in the clouds, what does it mean if not end of the world? What What is Jesus telling Caiaphas here? Okay, certainly does. Right, only God's going to be able to do this. Right. right. And, uh, his glory. Right. It's a picture of his glory, his authority. Sure. Right. Sure. Uh, it, it, cer- it certainly is. Um, would this be a positive statement to Caiaphas? Is Jesus saying something positive and warm to him and saying, hey, Caiaphas, you know, great guy, and you're going to see me coming in the clouds? No. Yeah. yeah. It, what you would see is if you go like to, to Daniel 7, Zephaniah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Nahum and here and, and also what we're going to look at with, uh, with Revelation is coming the clouds is a picture of judgment. 
That's why sometimes coming in the clouds can refer to the end, like 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to come in the clouds and we're all going to be caught up together with them. But just because you read coming in the clouds, don't do equal sign end of the world. That's not what everybody's talking about. When they're talking about a coming in the clouds, God's saying a judgment is coming. Sometimes it is a global judgment. Sometimes it's a Jerusalem judgment. Sometimes it's an Israel judgment. Sometimes it's a Babylon judgment. There's lots of different places and times where God says, I'm coming in the clouds. And here in verse 64 of Matthew 26, clearly would be talking about a Jerusalem judgment and saying, You guys have rejected the son of God. Are you the son of God? Are you the one I am? And there's judgment coming for what you're doing. You're going to see me coming in the clouds. Now, again, these are pictures, right? Caiaphas was not going to literally see Jesus riding around on a cloud. And Caiaphas is going to walk outside one day and go, oh, wow, there he is. He's riding around on a cloud. I can't believe it. Remember, symbols... Symbols pointing to realities, just like you're not really going to see dragons and really see bees. These are images that are depicting something. You're going to understand, like Debbie said, my glory and my authority and my power are going to be visibly observed in judgment against you, Caiaphas, and against this priesthood and against this nation. That's what he's saying. And to say you're going to see it means it's going to be in his lifetime, right? Which, that's what happened. That's what exactly what happened. As Jerusalem falls in 70 AD, as the Romans come in and destroy it. So very important that when we read, coming in the clouds, please make your equal sign read God's judgment. God's judging somebody. Judgment is happening. And context tells you judging who. <laughs> End of world, sometimes. Jerusalem, sometimes. Babylon, sometimes. Rome, sometimes. It just depends on who he's talking to you when he says, I'm coming in the clouds against you. Mike? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's the idea of one of the first places you see that is in Daniel 7, where here you have the Son of Man coming in the clouds to the Ancient of Days. But then it's not just a symbol, it's, and he receives authority and power and dominion and glory and begins to rule over all of the earth and is exerting his rule and judgments against those who stand against him, which is what the rest of chapter 7 talks about, where it's going to talk about these four beasts and they're all getting destroyed. Well, who's doing it? Christ is, because he's on the throne and he's reigning. He's come in the clouds. So it's it's that judgment kind of picture. Yeah. I also understood it as a, um, not only is he coming in your time and you're witnessing, but he's also coming to witness it, but you'll know yeah. as you witness. Sure. You'll know that you brought this one in the coming in the sure. clouds. You know. Absolutely, because yeah, Jesus has walked around telling yeah. the Jewish leadership, <laughs> judgment's coming. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. You'll know this is me. Uh, You'll know I did this because I told you I was going to do this. Uh, Exactly. That's what those final chapters of of the book of Matthew are doing. So.
taking that, let's run back now into Revelation here so that when we're looking at verse 7, the first thing we should not be doing is, behold, he's coming in the clouds. End of the world. Right there in the first seven verses. Hold on, hold on, you know. Coming in the clouds. What is he talking about? Now, uh, does your Bible make a notation or change the font or do something to this to show you that this is a quotation from somewhere in Scripture? Or have a footnote or a marker or something to tell you that somewhere in your Bible. I mean, only maybe maybe a text only Bible would. Where is this a quotation from? Not from Daniel 7. Zechariah. Where? 12. 10. 12, 10. All right. So you got to go to Zechariah 12, 10. We're going to do this a lot in this study. I'll go ahead and stand on my head now and say, please prep ahead of time of looking at these things because it's going to be really important because we're going to have to go back to all of these prophets and see what these pictures were talking about. Otherwise, we're not going to get the picture. We're going to be out in left field and completely miss these images. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. So go back there. That way we can get the message of what God is doing. Zechariah 12 and verse 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleadings for mercy so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps for the first over the firstborn. And then it continues and talking about in verse 11 on that day, mourning in Jerusalem as great as the mourning for Hadad Harim and the plain of Megiddo. And then it starts describing various peoples of their families and of, of uh, Israel verses 12, 13, 14, all mourning over that. So think about verse verse 10. Zechariah says something's going to happen. Something's poured out to them. And when that happens, then they're all going to look on me as one whom they've pierced and they're all going to mourn for me. So we got to figure out what is what does that mean? What is Zechariah talking about is going to happen? What is expected that the people are going to do? So what's God doing and what are the people going to do? And if we can get that framed in, we can pull that into into Revelation. Kathy? Um, for me, it was good. Like, they're going to see where he was to the Okay. So it's interesting you have some, some visual here of, of uh, somewhat of a messianic terminology here that you're going to uh, look on the one whom they've pierced and mourn for him. Okay. So what is it getting at here and talking about one who may, I don't want to give away answers, so I'm trying to dan- dance around the circle. <laughs> Good. There is a heart of repentance that's happening. Notice that the result is first in verse 10. I'm going to pour out this spirit of grace and mercy, right? And, and, and what is generating that? They're going to look on me whom they've pierced, and they're going to mourn. So there's this picture that's being set up in Zechariah that's saying, remember Zechariah has described 
judgment sequences, but future restoration that, that's going to happen. It wasn't too long ago I did Zechariah. Was that last year? I don't know. You know, time is just... But uh, I did it sometime. <laughs> and you had in that picture, so there's going to be this judgment, but the judgment is supposed to generate repentance. It's supposed to cause people to be sorrowful. It's supposed to cause them to mourn. And that's what you see happening there is you're going to mourn and weep. And so notice it's not a mourning and weeping of devastation. We've been judged and it's terrible and it's over and, and, and we're doomed. It's you're going to see God do something amazing in this spirit of mercy and grace and restoration that is supposed to cause the people to forego their sinful ways, be sorrowful for their sins, and, and be repentant. And in fact, using what is an amazing seems to be a messianic terminology here, even to the point of seeing the one whom they've pierced. Okay. Now, who is this prophecy given to? Who's, who's the object of this prophecy in Zechariah 12? The Jews. The Jews. The Jews. And you can see that in verse 11, right? On that day, the morning in Jerusalem, right? So notice that's important to what's happening in the book of Revelation, because notice you have a quotation in verse seven of this. Behold, he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So, okay, let's see how we did. What's the information from Zechariah 12 that we should be importing into Revelation 1? What did we just learn is happening here? And what's that look like here? Okay, it was, but you know we're past that now, right? We're we're we're, we're past that time. So, what's the? This is always this is the great trick and work of Bible study. That meant something in Zechariah twelve, and I just for three or four minutes we talked about what that meant to them. Take that, go forward, drop it in Revelation one. So what is he telling them with that using that same picture? Casey? Um, well, I, I have that he is going to open their eyes. Okay. So let's exactly right. Let's put all those pieces together. He's coming in the clouds. What is that a picture of? Judgment. Judgment. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him in Zechariah 12. That meant what? There's going to be this sorrow and repentance restoration. People are going to be broken hearted when they see this judgment and this event. And it was applied specifically at that time to Israel. But notice how the rest of it goes. And all the tribes of the earth are going to see you. So you're getting a picture of God's going to bring a judgment and do something that's supposed to invoke a repentance, not only in Israel, but ultimately to the whole earth. Is that a fair take on what just happened right there? I think that's the way to look at what that sentence is doing. He's coming in the clouds. Okay, so judgment sequence is happening. And even those who pierced him are going to mourn. All right, well, that was said to Israel. So they're getting an opportunity here. They're getting a chance. And all the tribes of the earth, they're getting a chance too. They're also a part of this restoration hope of trying to get them to repent also in the events that are going to be described in the book. 
So it's actually not that hard after all, right? See, if we just go back and go, oh, okay, I know where that quote is. What'd that mean there? Stick it forward. Yep. Right. And, and like she said, it's saying that, you know, the Jewish who did not believe they killed the Messiah, you're going to be given another chance along with the Gentiles and the yep. rest. Yep. And even, I believe, so somewhere that I've painted, but I don't know where, that the yep. Gentiles will most likely embrace it more than yep. his own people. Um, and the second next chance of not being Yes, and and one of the things that you'll notice is the the book of Revelation is going to prove to us that we we've got this idea correct because you you get to these these places where it's going to talk about um, God pouring out these judgments and pouring out these wraths and you'll notice they're always numbered right there's like either seven bulls or seven this and seven that is constantly all these sevens and and they're being poured out along the way so like in Revelation chapter 16 just jump in we're not going to read it but just to give you a sense of how verse 7 of chapter 1 is framing the book in Revelation chapter 16, notice verse 1 talks about pouring out on the earth these seven bowls of God's wrath. Okay, there's your, your summary of what's about to happen. Here's the wrath of God being poured out. So verse 2, bowl 1, verse 3, bowl 2, verse 4, uh, bowl, bowl 3. Uh, that gets confusing to say numbers like that. That's really... <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that just kind of spun out there for a minute. Notice that you get down like to verse 8. Here's the fourth, fourth bowl. And notice what it says at the end there of verse, verse, verse 9. It says, they were scorched with the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God with the power of these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Isn't that what one seven is saying? Judgments are going to happen. And it's supposed to cause the people to mourn over their sins and repent. And we're going to see a lot of these judgment images happening that's supposed to have that intention. The people refuse to do it. And so then you continue on in verse 10 and it's just going to get worse. And notice actually verse 11 or verse 10 does this right at the end of verse 11. They did not repent of their deeds, still not responding to the judgments that God is doing. So then there is the catastrophe of the nation ultimately at the end of that. So I want you to see Revelation 1, 7, that's setting up how God's going to work. Coming in the clouds, judgments are coming. It's an opportunity for everybody to repent, even those who pierced him. It's their chance too. They have a chance to repent. This is their opportunity. Don't throw away the opportunity of what's about to happen as this book delineates judgments and opportunities of repentance and restoration, which is what Zechariah 12 was, was talking about. Mike? Yeah. It doesn't tie to Revelation, but God does give us a lot of things that are intended to prick and invoke the heart to get us to wake up along the way. Not only memorials that are given to us, baptism as a symbol of the memorial, the Lord's Supper as a symbol of the memorial that are these moments to test where are you with God? Are you are you walking with him and all of that? But even the, the, the trials that we go through are certainly those individual ones where God is is testing us like James 1 and 1 Peter 1 says. And to use what the prophets talk about, national judgments are that also. When nations rise and fall, that's also God saying, wake up, hi, 
I'm in charge. I'm the one who's ruling over these things. Are you following me or not? So that's right, Mike. There's, there's a lot of things that God has given to us that are supposed to be those touch points in our lives to, to stop and think and go, uh, all right, am I repentant? Am I, is my heart right with God uh, before there is that final judgment that, that, that comes? Charlotte? Yeah, and I wouldn't. I would read this still in the futures because he doesn't say, "Behold, I came in the clouds, and every eye saw him, and everyone who pierced him." It's not the past tense, so he's using that imagery again and pulling it forward. Sure. This is something else. Yeah, it's, it's it's moving forward past that in in, in, the, in those images, Debbie. Um, when I did my study on this, I was thinking that when it said all peoples on earth will mourn, so shall it be. But then when I read that, I thought it was referring to it was too late to repent. Yeah, and and I, I the reason why I wouldn't go with that is because later on the book is going to give these statements and say this was their chance to repent and they didn't. Where bulls are going to come, in the end, but they didn't repent. So then these other things happen. Now, you could read it in a in a prophetic, perfect sense of God knowing how this is all going to play out, and so this is their chance. They're not going to respond to it, which is why you're going to see so many judgment pictures in, in, in the book. But the, the idea of of saying every eye will see him, even those who who pierced him, is to conjure up that repentance opportunity that is supposed to be. Judgment is intended to bring about salvation. It's supposed to cause people to wake up and repent. And probably looking forward to the first century one for where he is, because if you kept going just a couple more sentences in chapter 12, terrible chapter break, chapter 13, verse 1, Talks about a fountain being opened up for all to come in and have cleansing of sin. Well, what's he talking about <laughs> when Christ comes? So I think this is looking forward to that and observing that there was going to be another chance for Israel's repentance and restoration. But Revelation then capitalizes on that and goes, and not only them, but everyone of the earth. Everyone's going to have that chance to capitalize on, on, on this, right? That's right. And if I, I would love to take a 20 minute tangent on that, but you have keyed in on something that if you grew up in the pews was a really bad idea that was taught that was, well, anytime you read kingdom, that always equals the church. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Not even close. Jesus did not ascend to heaven and get the church. That is not what happened. He got a kingdom. Does it include people? Okay. People are the church. Yeah. But it includes realm and power and glory. We're talking about ruling heaven and earth. It's far broader and, um, and bigger than that. So you're exactly right that that's what Daniel is talking about. And you see the 
establishment of it and the initiation of it in Acts 2. But it's continuing on as he's putting all the enemies under his feet. He's still ruling now, still subjugating the enemies. And 1 Corinthians 15, he'll keep doing it until death's finally dealt with. He's, he's ruling now and accomplishing that. So that, yeah, that's a, that's a good, good point. All right, anything else with verse 7? You good with that? Yes. That's right. So, there's always hope. That's right. But then And we should always look at that that way. Verse 7 especially paints that. Judgment is a positive picture. If you're on the right side of it. Right? Because you in your life want judgments on all kinds of evil and wickedness, right? I mean, here we are and we're like, man, there's so much injustice and there's so much evil and there's so much wrong. And it's a positive to think about it in terms like that, right? Oh, man, it's going to be great when God finally deals with wickedness and Satan and, and evil and injustice. And he's going to fix all that. And that's going to be awesome. We love it in terms like that. Keep that idea in your mind. Because the whole point of this is I'm trying to get you on the right side of judgment so that you can have that positive view. Yeah, if you're on the wrong side, if you're part of that are counted with the evildoers, like the book of Revelation is going to say and start describing those who are cast in the lake of fire. Okay, well, then, yeah, it is a bad thing. But that should not be our perspective. That judgment is what we're ultimately looking for. God putting things back to right, putting justice in place, asserting his rule over heaven and earth so that. Things are, are put the way they ought to be. And so, yeah, so this is a beautiful picture of, of Christ who loves us and freed us and made us priests. And and uh, here we are as his kingdom and every eye is going to see him. And we've been given this opportunity to, to be a part of that. And his judgments as he works in the world is to bring us to that very point. So I think that's exactly right. Casey. That's right. That's right. It's like, keep doing it. Keep subjugating the wicked, right? Put them under your feet. This is, we want your will done here like it is in heaven. We want you to bring that. And so it's a positive way, right? Right. Is that, that, that idea is God continues to put nations and peoples and wickedness under his feet and keeps, keeps that work going. And so sometimes, uh, for those who, who've grown up in the pew, sometimes think of the kingdom only as the singular point in time. But when, when Christ ascended and, and took control of, of the kingdom and is ruling over heaven and earth, and that's observed in Acts 2, that begins the process of now subjugating nations. That's what Daniel and Revelation are going to talk about. Here are these wicked nations and peoples that need to be judged, and it's going to describe Christ doing something about it and putting them under his feet. That's why you're going to get out to chapter 19 and see Christ riding in on white horses with blood up to the bridle. And he's slaughtered the enemies and saying, either you're with me or there's judgment. This is what it's, what's going to, what it's going to be. And so God is accomplishing that. All right. What about verse eight? I am the alpha and the omega says the Lord God who is, who was, and who is to come the almighty. 
All right, why say that? What's, what's this communicating to that audience? What's he trying to get, get across to them? And what's an alpha and an omega, for crying out loud, you know? <laughs> Gathy? That's right. There's a sovereignty aspect when you say the Lord God Almighty. So he has power and rule and authority over over all things. So I'm the Alpha, the Omega, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. All right. Yeah. There is nothing greater. Okay. That's right. Without him, you don't. There is no. Yeah, that's it. not even a word without him. <laughs> That's right. Doesn't Hebrews 1 confirm that everything exists and is sustained by his word? It, it, without, him, without him, there's there nothing. No That's right. It's, 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 it's over and done, Dennis. Uh, All right. 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 So here's a little bit of, uh, of first century contextualization is important. Alpha in Greek is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And you also then have, have the alpha, the omega. The omega is the last letter of the, of, of the Greek alphabet. So if you were to convert that into our terminology, he just said, I'm the A and the Z. All right, so what would that mean? I'm, a, I'm everything, right? <laughs> if you say I'm the A to the Z, then I'm everything. I'm over everything. It's all about me. I'm I'm. All the letters and all the letters in between. I, 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 that's why the rest of it is who is, who was, and is to come. It fits why this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about him and his rule and his authority and what he's going to do. This is ultimately about him and him, him establishing that authority and rule. He is over, over it all. And think about what a comfort that is. Here you are, and we're going to read in chapters 2 and 3 about Christians who are suffering and tribulation and hardship. And he goes, guess what? I'm the A to Z. Uh, I, I've got this. There, there, there's nothing outside my, my, my sphere and my, and my rule. Julie? Well, this is the credibility. So he doesn't need to tell us, but he does. So he is the past, present, and future. And he's the beginning and the end. That's right. He is the I am, so he's yep. the all encompassing. Yeah. There's nothing that's right. That's right. If he's the A to Z, then is anything outside of his control? If he's the A to Z, is anything outside of his knowledge, outside of his awareness? He, 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 he didn't wake up one day and go, wow, I can't believe all that's going on. I have no idea. I need to, I need to step in and do something about that. You know, it, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the start and the finish. It's all in my hands. It's all under my control. I'm completely in charge. I'm on the throne. I'm ruling. That's what those first eight verses are doing is establishing that. Dathan? You raised the question last week about why, why speak, why describe God in this way. Yeah. And the, the look at the word um, Almighty. It's actually used. Ten times in the New Testament, but nine times in the Book of Revelation. Yeah. So I see, I see in Revelation a perpetual description of God's omnipotence, His omnipresence, yeah. and, and, and and His omniscience as well. That's right. And bear in mind the suffering that is taking place. 
that, that this is a word of comfort. It is. Um, to, to, to the ears, and, and it's also an encouragement for them to persevere. That's right. In, in, the, in the midst of suffering, because, you know, that's, you know, Jesus went through this, you know, this idea of overcomer and conquer mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. on in school. And therefore, it's, it's really an encouragement for us to persevere whatever the circumstances. That's exactly right. He's, that, that he's is sovereign, he's in control. That's the great one of the great life lessons here is he, he, did he stop being the A to Z? Is this this just relevant only back there to when this was written, or is he still the A to Z? He's still who is, who was, and who is to come. He's still the Almighty. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he is absolutely. Muriel. Yeah, absolutely. It just makes that equation right out of the gate using the same terminology. You know, we it, it, uh, uh, it, it is interesting to see that where he, you know, what is tied to God the Father is tied to him himself, which is what, you know, Jesus was trying to walk around saying, you know, he's like, God right here, you know, I'm, that, I, I'm him, Charlotte. It does. It does. It, it, it absolutely does. That's that. You're jumping to chapter five, right? Where you go, here's the great lion of Judah. And what do you turn and see? Slain lamb. Amazing. Amazing. The power of God is displayed through the humility of the cross. Absolutely. All right. Uh, good with all that. Yep. That's right. To keep it as simple as that. Yeah. Not only is he willing to come into flesh, but to be what we call a meek lamb of one, yeah. and still be represented to show yeah. for you I will. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. So we're talking about what a comfort it would be in hardship and difficulty. Look at verse nine. What's what's John going through? What's happened? He's got a couple of different descriptions to use about what's going on with him. Okay, one, he's on Patmos for some reason. Why? Was he, what's he give us the reasoning? Because he's there on a summer vacation and thought Patmos would look beautiful. It says, for the, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So clearly he has gotten in trouble, in difficulties, and is exiled because of his proclaiming of the gospel. So he's already going through difficulties in being a Christian. He's already experiencing that. And notice he's relaying that to his audience because he points out in verse 9, he says, I'm your brother and partner in what? Tribulation. We're in this together. We're suffering for the cause of Christ together. And the things he's going to talk about of what those Christians are going through, he says, hey, I'm on, on Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. So here we are. We're sharing together in the tribulation and we're sharing together in what? What comes after tribulation in that sentence? The, the kingdom, right? Tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is found in Christ. So we're in tribulation. Does our hardships and our suffering mean we're not in the kingdom of God? No. 
that. Yeah, exactly. The only the confirming identifier, right? That, that you're in the kingdom of God. So really important. So he goes, we're suffering. We're in tribulation. We're in hardships. I'm in, in Patmos. It's for the word of God. And guess what? We're still in the kingdom of God here. We're, we're, we're still depending upon the who is, who was, and who is to come. We're still depending upon the Alpha and the Omega. So he has his own basis of, of expressing that expressing that to him verse 10 what happens to to john why do you say that's a vision my my translation does not say vision i'm testing you I, you're right <laughs> you're, you're not wrong <laughs> says in verse 10 i was in the spirit on the lord's day so how do we know being in the spirit means vision. This is where my Sunday night crew should be flying in. It is because he's doing something pretty uh, amazing there. What What is Ezekiel experiencing? Ezekiel's your connect that we've been doing on Sunday night. What does Ezekiel have happening? He's in the spirit. And he starts seeing amazing visions of God, right? So that's why when you read his in the spirit, there's a reason to read this as he's going to start seeing visions or dreams. Uh, that's what's about to happen. So like Kathy's God is, is doing this, putting John in the spirit so that he can now see these amazing sequences of visions and images that the rest of the book is, is going to hold. It says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. When's the Lord's day? How do you know? It says you. I say it's Friday. Friday's great, right? Done with work. Friday. <laughs> Resurrection, right? I mean, what else could possibly be the Lord's day than Sunday, right? And, and the reason why I stop on that, you might say, well, that's really ridiculous. Why are you stopping on that? Here's why I'm stopping on that. Because there's only two places in the New Testament where this possessive, curios, Lord, Lords exists. Lord's Day, as in the Spirit of the Lord's Day, and Lord's Supper. It's interesting, those are the only two times you, you, you find that is the word of Lord's Supper or, or Lord, Lord, Lord's Day. And I think that's important. There's something special about the Lord's Day. There's something special about the first day of the week. It's the day we remember him. It's the day of resurrection. It's the day of the memorial. It's the day of worship. That, that's, there's a reason it's called the Lord's Day. There's a reason that it's not Monday or Saturday or Friday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. First day of the week is it. And that's the day that God had designated. And there's reason behind it. And it's interesting that he doesn't say, I was of the Spirit on the first day of the week. The first day of the week had significance. That he would call it belonging to God. It's his day because of what he accomplished on that day. And that's why the Lord suffers that day. And that's why it's called the Lord's Day and the resurrections that day. All of that stuff is put together with that right here. So to me, that's a very important description here. Being in the spirit on the, on, on the Lord's Day. What do I got? Two minutes. All right. What's, what, what happens and what, he's, what is he told to do? Let's we'll see if we can get through verse, uh, verse 11 here. All right, so 
Notice he says here in, in, in verse 10 or verse 11, write what you see. Remember we talked about that in those first three verses. John is not going to just be heard what to write. Often prophets were told that, but I didn't say Siri. I said see. I know. Uh, you're right. I didn't say Siri, but you're not listening to me. Oh, man. Great. I even have it on Do Not Disturb and it piped up. How about that? I didn't even know that could happen on Do Not Disturb. I always do not disturb everything. I got the little moon and everything right here. Don't talk to me. So, <laughs> write what you see. <laughs> and that's because he's going to see these things. He's going to see vision. I have to be really slow with the word now. <laughs> So we don't have a technology mouthing off back at me. So write those things down. Who's he going to send it to? Seven churches. So were they actual churches? Yes. We talked about that last week. But if these are just symbolic churches, then why are you saying this? If this is just seven churches that randomly, idealistically represent all churches for all time, what? It wouldn't make any sense to then name them and send letters to them. That doesn't... Work. So we talked about we're going to take things as symbols as we ought, unless the text demands otherwise. And man, does it really demand otherwise right here that we are writing a letter and sending it to them so that they can have the, these messages. Clearly, these seven churches exist. They're named. Uh, and this letter was was going to to come. Uh, one other thing before we, we, we stop, because we're out of time. Verse 10. What does John hear? Loud voice like what? Like a trumpet. Does that remind you of something? When God talks? Like Mount Sinai, right? It's the sound of this trumpet just getting louder and louder and louder and louder. The voice of God is always depicted as this thunderous kind of sound. Like trumpets or like thunder. It's always loud and powerful. And so you're getting that here. I was, you can just imagine this voice. Like just imagine blaring trumpets. Write what you see. And put it in this. And send it to these churches. It just would have blaring to his ears. As he would have heard that command. Okay. All right, we'll pick up in uh, verse, what is it, 12 uh, next week and push our way through chapter 1. 15-minute break. We'll reconvene at 1030 for our next hour of worship. Thank you, everyone.